3: Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal con artist's episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we'll focus on wealthy criminals. We'll discuss what leads high-status individuals to commit crimes, as well as the consequences they face once captured. Psychologist Brad Klontz provided a look into the minds of the ultra-wealthy. He sought to understand why some of the most well-off people turn to crime, even when they don't need the money. Klotz believes that the money and status the rich enjoy leads them to play fast and loose with boundaries. Extreme wealth can cause a person to believe the rules don't apply to them. There are always people willing to bend the rules for the wealthy in order to get something in return. Mark Maurer, an expert in sentencing policies, says this results in two separate justice systems in America, one for the poor and one for the rich. His studies have shown that the money bail system keeps the poor in jail, while the wealthy are allowed to roam free after their arrest. Once the trial begins, the rich are able to pay top dollar for the best defense attorneys. In today's episode, we'll hear about several crimes committed by wealthy criminals and the surprising results of their ensuing trials. Our first clip from Kingpins covers Pablo Escobar, a Colombian drug lord who founded the Medellin Cartel. During the 1970s and 80s, the cartel smuggled thousands of pounds of cocaine into countries all around the world. Pablo came from humble beginnings as the son of a poor farmer in Colombia, but amassed a net worth of $30 billion by the time of his death in 1993. It is thought that Pablo's foray into the criminal world occurred when he started selling counterfeit high school diplomas as a teenager. Over time, his financial strain grew and Pablo escalated his illegal activities. Soon he was stealing cars, robbing banks, and kidnapping victims for ransom. His crimes continued into the 70s, when he started the drug smuggling operation that became the Medellin Cartel.
4: Throughout the 70s, Pablo was building a reputation for himself as a gang leader, but his scams were still on a relatively small scale. To take his criminal game to the next level, he'd need to learn from a real kingpin.
5: Rafael Puente was known in Medellin as a successful contraband smuggler. He would receive shipments of items like cigarettes, electronics, accessories, and apparel from countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, and Japan. The cargo would be unloaded off ships that docked in the coastal Colombian city of Torbo and packed onto trucks that drove the merchandise to Medellin.
4: Pablo met Rafael through mutual friends at a soccer game. Rafael offered Pablo a job as a bodyguard, but he quickly proved his worth as a lieutenant by selling contraband cigarettes. Once Rafael saw Pablo's potential, he brought him a problem that was throwing off his entire business.
5: Rafael used about 50 workers to unload his merchandise and pack it onto the trucks in Turbo, about 340 kilometers from Medellin. Trouble was, Rafael sometimes lost up to 50% of his merchandise between the shipping container and the truck.
4: He offered Pablo 10% of his profits if he could reduce the amount of merchandise that was stolen. Pablo made a counteroffer. He would personally oversee the transportation of the goods from Turbo to Medellin. Pablo would do the first trip for nothing, so Rafael could evaluate his performance. It was a deal.
5: Pablo traveled to Turbo and met with Rafael's team. He found that the workers were severely underpaid and therefore had no allegiance to their boss. The goods were being stolen by his own disgruntled workers. Rafael didn't have a security problem. He had a loyalty problem.
4: Pablo arranged a fancy seafood dinner, complete with wine, for all the workers. Under these pleasant conditions, Pablo made his case. He wanted to help make their lives better.
5: Pablo pledged half of his own salary to the workers if they stopped stealing the merchandise. If any more merchandise was stolen, however, Pablo would lose his job and the workers would lose their jobs. Pablo's pitch was so effective that some workers even returned merchandise they'd already taken before Pablo's arrival.
4: Pablo was already building another axiom that would define his business practices for the rest of his life. Rewards generated more loyalty than fear.
3: In that clip from Kingpins, Pablo Escobar gained the trust of a gang of drug smugglers in order to increase his overall profit. Pablo eventually used these same tactics in his own cartel to great effect. In 1989, he was named the seventh richest man in the world. When Pablo was finally arrested two years later, he used his money to cut a deal with the Colombian government. They allowed him to be incarcerated in a prison he'd built himself, Dubbed La Catedral, the penitentiary featured a jacuzzi, a soccer field, and a full bar. Pablo was allowed to take visitors and was even able to conduct his cartel business from inside his cell. Pablo Escobar showed how a tiny criminal operation could rapidly expand. Many hyper-rich criminals were able to pull off similar feats. Our next subject, Bernie Madoff, also started small. But eventually, his wealth would eclipse even Pablo Escobar's. Coming up, we take a look at Bernie Madoff's $65 billion
0: Ponzi scheme. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
3: Now back to the show. So far, we've discussed how Pablo Escobar built a drug-smuggling empire and used his wealth to buy a cushy stay in prison. Our next criminal wasn't nearly so flashy, targeting wealthy investors rather than those suffering from drug addiction. In our next clip from ParCast Original Con Artists, we'll learn about the mastermind behind the biggest Ponzi scheme of all time, Bernie Madoff. By the time Madoff was arrested in 2008, he had stolen $65 billion from investors. Before his Ponzi scheme grew to those heights, however, Madoff founded a small investment securities firm. But even in the early days, he relied on nefarious practices to boost his numbers. He used a tactic called riskless arbitrage, which involved buying a stock at one price while simultaneously locking in a sale of that same stock for a higher price. Essentially, this allowed him to buy and sell a stock at the same time and profit off the transaction.
6: According to financial journalist Diana Henriquez, it's a rule in investment advising to only recommend suitable investments. Suitability is determined by an investor's willingness and ability personal circumstances, to take on a certain level of risk. This rule is legally enforced by government regulatory agencies, like the Securities and Exchange Commission. In the early 60s, Madoff ignored the practice of suitability and put his clients' investments into risky, speculative, new-issue stock whether or not they'd be able to handle that amount of risk. Madoff knew this was wrong and knew it was illegal. He did it anyway. His disregard netted Madoff Securities almost $30,000 in cash by 1962 after just over two years in business. That's a little over a quarter million dollars today. But in May 1962, the market crashed. And just like that, almost all of Madoff's clients suffered serious losses. This put Bernie at a crossroads that he would face several times in his life – a junction between his pride and the truth. But as it did time and again, Madoff's ambition and persuasive arrogance knew that if he wanted to reach his goals, admitting failure was not an option. So he took the cash he had on hand and bought back his clients' stocks at the price they'd invested, effectively erasing the losses. Because he was trading in the little-known, little-regulated OTC market, none of the clients were any the wiser. They still had their money and kept their investments and good faith in Bernie Madoff. Whether he knew it or not, Madoff was laying out the groundwork for what social psychologist Maria Konnikova identifies as the eight steps of the successful con. The first of these steps is finding a victim. Madoff quickly realized that as long as his clients got their money back, they weren't liable to ask too many questions. The pursuit of money left many to be easily manipulated. But this manipulation would have to wait as Bernie's quick fix gave rise to a secondary problem. While he had erased his clients' losses, thereby maintaining their trust, he'd done it at the expense of all his money. There was no way for him to continue his business and save face. Except, there was. Bernie had married rich and with that came privilege he leveraged his close relationship with his father-in-law, Saul Alpern, to secure a loan to the tune of $30,000. According to Madoff, Alpern loaned him the money and Madoff repaid him before the end of 1964. At this point, it seems that at just 26 years old, Bernie Madoff had perfected his ability to gain people's trust. He'd broken the law, deceived his clients, taken advantage of a family member and come out all the richer.
3: In that clip from Con Artists, Bernie Madoff laid the groundwork for his multi-billion-dollar Ponzi scheme. And as time went on, the lies snowballed. He had to keep conning to keep the trust of those around him, and Madoff got away with his grift for years. In 2009, when he was finally unmasked, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. While Pablo Escobar enjoyed a cozy prison of his own making, Madoff was housed in a standard medium-security prison. But Madoff still benefited from his wealth inside. He continues to enjoy a celebrity status amongst his fellow inmates, who respect him and even ask him for financial advice. Ever the businessman, Madoff paid one inmate $8 a month to do his laundry, when the going rate is $10. But Madoff is only one of many white-collar criminals who profited from their crimes. Our final wealthy criminal, like Madoff, relied on illegal means to massively expand her wealth. The last clip is from Female Criminals and covers billionaire tax evader Leona Helmsley. With the help of her husband, Harry, Leona created a New York real estate empire that included hotels, condos, and even the Empire State Building. Leona earned the nickname, the Queen of Mean, for her harsh treatment of her employees and her tendency to fire subordinates for trivial offenses, just to enjoy watching them plead for their jobs back. Despite being billionaires, Leona and Harry were notoriously stingy They regularly stiffed their contractors after work was completed and charged Leona's satin dresses as business expenses. Leona famously told her housekeeper that, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. The quote would later come back to bite her after it was repeated at Leona's trial for tax evasion and fraud in 1989.
2: On August 30, 1989, 69-year-old Leona Helmsley was found guilty on 33 counts of various types of fraud and tax evasion. For her crimes, she was sentenced to 16 years in a federal prison. Leona was shocked by this smack of reality.
1: She remained in the courtroom for an hour after the sentence was read to confer with her legal team. She wanted to know what their next steps were to get the sentence overturned. For a woman of
2: Leona's notoriety and stature, she felt the consequences were unacceptable. She would be 85 years old when she got out of prison, assuming she lived that long.
1: As she was being escorted from the courtroom, she was approached by the press. Through tears, she said she was, quote, more humiliated and ashamed than anybody could ever imagine.
2: The stress of the proceedings became too much for her. Leona fainted on the courthouse steps and was rushed to the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center.
1: Her doctors concluded that the stress of the verdict aggravated her irregular heartbeat and hypertension. She was ultimately fine, but needed a few days to rest and recover.
2: Once back on her feet, Leona hired attorney Alan Dershowitz to represent her during the appeal. He was already an established lawyer to the rich and famous, having represented both Patricia Hearst and Jim Baker.
1: Later in his career, Dershowitz would also serve on O.J. Simpson's legal Dream Team with Johnny Cochran.
2: If Leona was humbled by the guilty verdict, it didn't seem to impact her behavior. One morning, while reviewing her case at a cafe in a Helmsley hotel, Leona showed Dershowitz the truth
1: behind her nickname, the Queen of Mean. When their drinks came, Dershowitz's teacup and saucer were dotted with water spots. When Leona noticed the mistake, it sent her into a rage. Dershowitz recalled that she smashed the china and screamed at the waiter for not checking the dishware before bringing it to them. She then made him beg to keep his job, which he begrudgingly did. This is another
2: insight into how important appearances and impressions were to Leona. Dershowitz was a business associate, a man she respected and whom she wanted to be respected by.
1: Everything had to be perfect, or at least appear that way, or it reflected poorly on Leona.
3: In that clip from Female Criminals, we heard Leona Helmsley displaying her trademark callousness while planning to appeal her conviction for tax evasion. Her efforts were successful as the judge eventually dropped 25 of her 33 charges and her 16-year sentence was reduced to four. In prison, Leona saw herself as superior to her fellow inmates. She paid other prisoners to keep her bunk clean and complete her work assignments. In 1994, after serving just 19 months of her sentence, Leona was released from prison. After her husband's death in 1997, Leona left New York City and lived the rest of her days in her estate in Connecticut, until her death in 2007 one of her final acts was to leave $12 million to her dog, Trouble. All of the clips today focused on wealthy lawbreakers who were eventually convicted for their crimes. In each case, the criminals were able to benefit from their riches, even while in prison. Pablo Escobar was allowed to continue running his massive drug cartel while in a custom jail he built himself. Leona Helmsley paid a high price for a ruthless defense attorney who was able to get her sentence massively reduced. Bernie Madoff was able to buy the respect and admiration of his fellow inmates and kept enough of his wealth to avoid doing his own laundry in prison. All of these criminals pushed the boundaries, believing that rules didn't apply to them. But though their wealth may have earned them a few luxuries in prison, ultimately, they couldn't get away with their crimes forever. Thanks for tuning in to ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the mind of a wealthy criminal. We'll be back next week with a new episode on criminals who torture their victims. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast Original shows, Kingpins, Con Artists, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network. I'll see you next time.